Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 212, Alfred, The Last Athlete. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Right now, the members are listening to an episode about the Anglo-Saxon perceptions of Islam. And afterwards, co-producer Z and I wrap it up with a talk about Edward Said's theory of Orientalism. It's a discussion that goes longer than an hour and a half, and it's full of information and ideas that you're unlikely to hear anywhere else. And if you'd like to hear that episode and all the other members' episodes, you can get instant access by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the same price as going to Starbucks once a month. And thank you very much to Ali, Thomas, and Juan for signing up already. It's mid-April of 871. For four long months, the House of Wessex has been battling against an invasion army of Danes who've been holding the royal ton of Reading. And battle after battle had resulted in bruising defeats at the hands of these pagans. The West Saxons had won against the Danes in Ashdown, sure. But what had that really accomplished? They'd killed some Danish nobles, and they pushed the army back to Reading. But the Danes were still in Reading. This problem wasn't going away. And these fights weren't without a cost. The months of conflict had left the West Saxon Ferd battered. Many of these poor farmers were now lying dead in the fields, and those who were still standing were likely demoralized and probably had wounds of their own to tend to. It was becoming clear that the price they were paying was far too steep for just a stalemate. Things were turning against the House of Wessex. At some point during all of the fighting, we're told by Alfred that he and his brother made an agreement over how the crown would pass. His account of this agreement was framed to imply that they were upholding their father's wishes that Wessex would be held by the eldest living son of Athelwolf. But Alfred took it one step farther. He added that the crown would then pass to that son's progeny. So now the succession plan not only had the potential of disinheriting King Athelred's sons in the short term, in the event that Athelred died first, but it would also disinherit them in the long term, because the crown would then pass to Alfred's sons, even though Athelred's sons would be older. The line of Athelred would be cut out entirely under this scheme. And this is known as the Swinborg Agreement. And I'm honestly not sure if it really was an agreement, or if it was something that was manufactured after the date to support Alfred and his line's claim to the throne. I can't even say for sure that this really happened, since our source definitely had a dog in the fight. It's entirely possible that King Athelred just wanted Alfred to rule as a regent for his sons. You know, in the event of his death, of course. And then once his sons came of age, he wanted them to rule. Now, we don't know what Athelred really wanted for sure, and that's because we don't have his will. Nor do we have a third-party witness. All we have is what Alfred and Alfred's later biographer, Asser, tell us that King Athelred wanted. And they tell us that everyone, the nobles, the Witan, even Athelred himself, wanted Alfred and his line to rule. They even claimed that Alfred's rule was an exercise of divine will. So yeah, 
even God himself was on the Alfred train. And Astor goes on to talk about how if Alfred really wanted to, he could have taken the crown back when Athelred was still alive. Here's a direct quote from Asser. Quote, Indeed, he could have easily taken the kingdom over with the consent of all while his brother Athelred was alive, had he considered himself worthy to do so. For he surpassed all his brothers in both wisdom and in all good habits. And in particular, because he was a very great warrior and victorious in virtually all battles. End quote. Really, Asser? Everyone preferred Alfred, even God? And Alfred was what, just too modest to enact a coup? And the whole kingdom, plus God, loved him because of how he was victorious in virtually all of his battles. Huh. Well, what about Mariton and Basing? Those didn't sound like victories to me. And I think even pundits today would have a hard time spinning a victory out of the Battle of Reading. In fact, as far as I can tell, the only battle Alfred was a part of so far that Wessex didn't lose was Ashdown. At a certain point, you have to start thinking to yourself, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. The lady in this case being Asser. And isn't it nice to have your personal biographer praising you for your modesty while also talking about how you're literally the best and how everybody loves you and they would commit treason for you if you asked. Now, it is possible that the reason for all of this praise and admiration was because these accounts were written later on in Alfred's life, after he'd already survived some challenges to his rule. So Asser and Alfred at this point might have been trying to make the strongest possible case for his children's legitimacy. So even if a lot of this was just fabricated and bragging, it might have been for a pretty good reason. He might have been concerned about his kids. But it still doesn't look that great from a modern perspective, does it? Now, we should note here that the Witan does witness Alfred's charters. And that would indicate that they did support Alfred early in his rule. So maybe he was beloved and immediately accepted as king. Though something to consider is that if Alfred was just intended to be a placeholder ruler, sort of like a regent, and that once his nephews came of age, he was supposed to step down. Well, the Wittans still would have appeared in those same charters because of the way their legal system was set up. I mean, they needed witness lists. So the fact that the Witan was signing Alfred's charters doesn't necessarily mean that this will wasn't complete bubkiss. And this might have been a scandal at the time, which really wouldn't be surprising given the state of most feudal politics. But let's assume that everything happened exactly the way Alfred says it did. And Athelred really did give him and his line everything. Well, that tells you a lot about the state of Wessex at this point. Athelred must have seen his death approaching, or at least known that there was a serious risk of death. And the situation in Wessex was so bad that he was willing to toss his children's future out the window in order to keep the line of succession clear and keep his brother happy. Wessex was in deep shit. But behind the walls of Reading, things weren't much better. King Halfdan, despite his victories in the field, was in a terrible situation. What was supposed to be an easy surprise attack at winter had turned into a long campaign, and one that had taken a terrible toll on his army. 
His partner, King Bagsek, was dead, as were large numbers of his Jarls. His army shrank and weakened after every engagement with these Southerners. And he was far from home, far from his support network. If Redding fell and they were forced to retreat by land, they would be hunted through these unfamiliar lands by the West Saxons. And then they'd be driven right into the hands of the Mercians, who hadn't forgotten about Snottingham. In the meantime, Halfdan's supplies were dwindling. Abels points out that the reserves on hand wouldn't have lasted all that long, probably a matter of weeks. And so there would have had to have been a stream of Danish raiding parties looking to bring back anything that was edible to their encampment. And those foraging parties, which honestly is an incredible euphemism, it sounds like they're out there picking berries, not raiding farms by force, which was actually what was happening. But they were out there in the field causing all manner of havoc for the surrounding area. And they weren't out there all on their own. The West Saxons had small mounted bands patrolling the area, looking to intercept the Danes in the field. These bands were composed mostly of thanes, other assorted nobles, and, we're told, Alfred. The fights between the Danish raiding parties and the West Saxon warband was an ongoing issue, and Alfred led many of the strikes in January, February, and March. And that would have added to the strength of his claim to the throne. And they might have been some of the victories that Asser spoke of. But beyond bolstering his standing with the West Saxon court, these skirmishes were also teaching him a valuable lesson in how to counter Danish hit-and-run tactics. And he would have had plenty of opportunities to learn, because we're told that the West Saxons engaged in nine of these skirmishes in 871. Nine fights, in addition to the major battles that we've been talking about. This was a knockdown dragout. And think about the effect that these fights would have been having on the Danes. They were bottled up with few resources. They had no choice but to venture out in search of supplies. And yet, when they did, these West Saxons were out there waiting for them. To compound the issue, as the weeks turned into months, the surrounding area would have cleared out. And that would mean that the Danes would have to go deeper into hostile territory and farther away from the safety of Reading. This campaign was turning into a debacle. And in a weird way, King Halfdan was probably thanking his lucky stars that his army didn't have much of an avenue for retreat. Because otherwise, he might have found himself on the losing side of a mutiny as the lean months dragged on. But April was finally here. It was campaigning season. And following the fight at Meryton, some good news might have filtered into the Danish encampment. King Athelred of Wessex had died. Perhaps this was a sign that the gods were with Halfdan. Maybe he could turn this around. Meanwhile, in the court of Wessex, I can only imagine the degree of anxiety that must have been in the air. Their kings had been dying at a remarkably quick pace. And now Alfred was the last one standing. If he should fall there would be no more sons of Athelwulf to turn to. He was the last. Now granted, the recently deceased King Athelred had left two sons, but they were very young children at this point. The only adult with a real legitimate claim to the throne 
and one that would be accepted by the nobles of Wessex in these troubled times, was Alfred. He was their last chance at this. And while he was a gifted war leader, and people spoke about his exploits at Ashdown, as well as the raids on the Danish raiding parties, the fact remained, he was also haunted by a mysterious disease. How long could he possibly hope to live when his older brothers, who were all healthier than him, had died young? People must have already been thinking about what to do when the new king died. Would the crown pass to Athelred's sons, even though they were still children? Would Alfred's sister, Queen Athelswith of Mercia, make a play for the crown, as she would have been the last of her father's children? Would lesser West Saxon nobles make a move? Anything could happen, and none of the claims would have come with the weight and unanimous support needed to avoid immediate challenges to the legitimacy of rule. Should Alfred die, instability and very likely civil war were right around the corner. And that was something that Wessex simply could not afford. Especially since the ground had thawed, the campaigning season had begun, and the Danes were still in West Saxon lands. In fact, according to Athelweird, who was writing about a century after this, so take that as you will, on the very same day that Alfred attended his brother's funeral, the men of Wessex fought the Danes at Reading and were defeated. The Danes then plundered the surrounding countryside. Now this did come a century after the fact, and our sources are usually pretty bad when that happens. But regardless of whether or not Athelweird's funerary battle actually happened, and I doubt it did. At most, I think it was probably one of those small skirmishes between mounted warbands and foraging Danes. But the fact remains that Alfred had taken possession of a kingdom in crisis. For months now, the men of the Ferd had been dying. The lands were being stripped of food and valuables. And I imagine the peasants were also being taken away in shackles. The Danes were slavers, after all. But despite the danger posed by these Danes, King Alfred's position was still weak, and more fighting was probably the last thing that he wanted. What he needed right now was a chance for his army to catch its breath. He needed time to come up with a plan. But ultimately, whether or not he had that time would depend on what King Halfdan did next. Luckily for Alfred, both kings were trapped in their own ways. Halfdan's army was simply too small to venture out of his camp in force. All this fighting had really taken its toll, and those problems were compounded by the guerrilla tactics of Alfred's West Saxon bands. Every time one of Halfdan's foraging bands encountered these mounted warriors, his army got a little weaker. So while Alfred was claiming the throne of Wessex and honoring his brother, King Halfdan was holding out, and probably hoping for reinforcements. And here's my question. Were messengers sent from Reading? Did Halfdan send out a long ship if he had one to spare, or maybe send Danes on foot or horseback, with the express purpose of going back to Danish-controlled lands and seeking support? I would imagine that he would. But at the same time, such a mission would be incredibly perilous. And how many men from his already dwindling army could he spare for such a mission? Especially given how dangerous this was. 
and how unlikely they were to find success. Jorvik and East Anglia were far from Reading, and to get to either location by ship would have taken them through enemy territory at an agonizingly slow pace. And to make matters worse, it would have been obvious to just about everyone where they were and where they were headed. It's hard to hide a ship, and everyone knows where you're going as soon as they see you. So perhaps messengers on foot or horseback would have been the better bet. But in that case, they would have to pass through Wessex, which was being patrolled by Alfred and his band of nobles. And if they made it through there, they would then have to travel through Mercia and hope they didn't run into any warbands up there either. If messengers were sent, it would have been a harrowing experience. And meanwhile, in Reading, King Halfdan and his men could do little but wait and hope that either the messengers got through or someone was preparing a secondary invasion force to find out what happened to his invasion force. There's also the chance that this would have been a fool's errand. There wasn't an unlimited number of Danes in Britain, and it's possible that Jorvik and East Anglia didn't have many warriors left to send. Considering the scale of the army that Halfdan and Bagseg led south, Jorvik and East Anglia might have only had a skeleton force at best. So here we are in mid-April, and we have yet another Easter in the Middle Ages where nobody is having any fun and people are dying. What's up with Easter? Then, suddenly, we're told of a great summer fleet arriving at Reading. Halfdan had his reinforcements. And soon thereafter, we read of three new Viking kings, Guthrum, Oscatel, and Anwind. Now, the chronicle is silent as to where they came from, and Asser tells us that they came over the sea. Specifics are lacking in both accounts, but it's been argued that Asser's description of them coming via the sea wasn't merely a descriptor of their mode of transport, but he was also letting us know that this was a new army that came from the continent. And that is entirely possible. The Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were falling rapidly, and the region was ripe with plunder, so enterprising Northmen might have been gathering armies together to get a piece of the action while they still could. There was a feeding frenzy in Eastern Britain at this point. So maybe they did come from the continent. But if this new army wasn't reinforcements from Halfdan's other territories, and if they were just a random army that traveled across the Channel, sailed up the Thames, and just happened upon Reading... And if they then immediately decided to join forces with Halfdan through, I can only assume, mutual admiration of ginger beards. Well, that is a remarkably lucky coincidence. Lucky for Halfdan, that is. For Alfred, this was turning into a shit show. And it was about to get worse. Scarcely a month after Alfred had become king of Wessex, the Danes left Reading marched to the west of Winchester, far beyond Basing, near Salisbury, and approached a place called Wilton. The reason for the advance was clear. Like Basing, Reading, and all their other targets, Wilton was a royal ville. Now, the very fact that the Danes were able to operate openly in Wiltshire, which was at the heart of the Kingdom of Wessex, shows us exactly how precarious Alfred's position was. He's only been king for a month, and Wessex was all but lost. His third was greatly weakened, and he probably was hard-pressed to find additional men to answer the call. 
and the Danes might have known that. Especially since, by taking, or at least looting, the administrative centers of Wessex, they were effectively dampening Alfred's ability to call upon Eldermen for service. Now, to understand what was happening here, you have to keep in mind how the military of Wessex was organized. Alfred didn't call upon the peasants himself. Instead, he persuaded his Eldermen to arm their peasants and then risk their peasants' lives on his behest. The Ferd was comprised of whatever men the Eldermen decided to part with. And here's where it gets really rough. The Vils housed not just Alfred's wealth, but also some of the Eldermen's. So after they were attacked, and after the numerous defeats that left the Eldermen's peasants either dead or maimed, which actually was even worse than having them dead when it came to you know sheer profits of being an Elderman, well, those same Eldermen would probably be incredibly reluctant to make another gamble on his behalf. They'd already lost a tremendous amount, and this young king had only won one battle, and that was back when he had his brother's support. Why risk more just to lose again? And there's another aspect to this. While our sources generally ignore the peasants, I imagine that the men who were being conscripted into the Ferd were becoming downright mutinous at this point. The losses had come too quickly and frequently, and in exchange for all this trouble, they gained nothing and lost much. At what point will the peasants just say, no, no, I'm not marching? So, with every vill that the Danes took, just like with every victory in the field, they weakened Wessex, both monetarily and militarily. But, even though the Ferd was in terrible shape, Alfred had no choice. This was zero sum for him. He couldn't let the Danes operate with impunity. To ignore the issue would be to let his lands get looted, and that would destroy his legitimacy to rule. If he did nothing, how long before his eldermen and thanes would start looking at his crown and make plans of their own? He had to march. And Asser gives us an additional detail that might also explain why Alfred felt emboldened to challenge this newly reinforced Scandinavian army, even though he had nothing more than a battered ferd. He tells us that Alfred saw himself as being strengthened by divine providence that he believed that God's favor was the reason why he lived, while so many, including his brothers, didn't. King Alfred and his men had God on their side. And what did these pagans have? Well, I guess they had superior numbers, and those numbers consisted of refreshed professional warriors. Oh, and they had more supplies, and a bunch of new leaders who could directly guide their warbands and skirmishes. And they probably had really high morale, and, oh, I don't know, probably new undies as well? Best not think about that. Now, Alfred had God on his side, and that was enough. So, after a short march, the Ferd of Wessex met the newly combined Scandinavian army at Wilton. And they immediately went to work. Asser says that the fighting was violent and resolute on all fronts for much of the day. This sounds like the shield walls on both sides held for an incredibly long battle. And despite having a numerical advantage, the West Saxons held out, and the Danes couldn't overwhelm or envelop their shield wall. Then, suddenly, the Danes broke and started fleeing from the field. 
The West Saxons, looking to capitalize on the opportunity, abandoned the shield wall and ran headlong to finish them off. And I wonder if Alfred ordered this advance. The place for the King of Wessex was in the field, likely surrounded by his trusted thanes. But his place was there, fighting, probably somewhere near the middle. And that's because a king was a war leader, and his presence would help spur on the Ferd as their morale weakened. Consequently, when the Danes broke, Alfred was probably right in the thick of it. So was he caught up in the moment and ordered the charge himself? At Ashdown, Asser described Alfred as a wild boar in battle, fearless and ferocious. A charge does seem like the sort of thing that he might have done. But on the other hand, we're largely talking about a bunch of peasants with spears and shields. And Alfred was busy fighting. So maybe he just didn't have the ability to maintain strict discipline with all these peasants. And the Ferd just charged on its own. I don't know. But however it happened, the West Saxon Ferd opened ranks and ran headlong at the Danes. And on the other side of this battle, things were looking very different. After a long day of fighting, it must have become clear to the Danes that they couldn't overcome the West Saxons, at least as long as they remained within their shield walls. Despite them being peasants, their shield wall was remarkably strong. So what they needed to do is lure them into open formation. And to do that, they presented the young king with what looked like an opportunity for victory. They made a feint, a false retreat. These were hastily trained peasants, and while they did do well in the shield wall, they were unlikely to be as skilled in single combat as a professional Scandinavian raider. So the Danes gave these peasants a reason to leave their shield wall. And once the wall broke, and the Ferd charged in open formation, the balance of power radically changed. The West Saxons simply didn't have the numbers necessary to exploit a retreat. They were outnumbered. Their only chance against such a large force was to bunch up behind their shields. But it was too late now. That open charge had left them too disorganized to reform when the Danes sprung their trap and turned on the Ferd, taking them by surprise. Suddenly, Alfred and his men found themselves locked in a disorganized melee against a vastly superior force. It's an old tactic, and one that's used repeatedly during this era, and for good reason. It's effective. And the men of Wessex, as well as Alfred, had fallen right into the trap. The West Saxon Ferd was quickly broken, and they were sent running from the field. The Battle of Wilton was lost. And frankly, so was the war. Shortly afterwards, King Alfred was forced to pay a Danegeld to get the invasion force to leave his lands. And while Asser doesn't detail the terms of payment, it must have been substantial. This is something that people forget when they talk about Alfred. He lost. A lot. And he also had to pay bribes, and he was tricked on more than one occasion. Now, Asser would have us believe that he was some form of demigod. But he was human. And sometimes things just didn't go his way. Though, in Alfred's defense, what choice did he have at this point? 
His kingdom was getting looted by raiding bands operating out of Reading, and whenever he formed a third, he was taking men out of the fields, which further impoverished his kingdom. And at this point, after about five months of conflict, the once great army of Wessex had pretty much been reduced to three guys and an arthritic dog. Anything was better than this. So, the Dane Guild was paid. And Wessex probably prepared for an incredibly difficult and lean year. Then, sometime at around this point in the story, though we don't have an exact date, something wonderful happened. Lady Aylesworth, wife of Alfred, gave birth to a baby girl. They named her Athelflaed. And I really wish we knew what Alfred thought of his new daughter. Esther doesn't tell us. And I'm sure there were concerns regarding succession. And I'm betting that he probably was hoping for a son, given how women were thoroughly removed from power within Wessex. But I wonder if all of that changed the moment he saw little Athelflaed. The thing is, the parents will sometimes talk about how, on first sight, they had a sense of their child's personality. That they just knew who this person would grow up to be. And I wonder if Alfred holding his little girl and looking into her eyes. I wonder if he realized he was holding a child of remarkable ability and willpower. Someone who would grow up to be a powerhouse in her own right. Someone who was destined to rule, regardless of the West Saxon cultural restraints that were placed upon her because of her sex. Someone who would forge her own path and to hell with what anyone else thought. Maybe he knew. Maybe he liked strong women, and that was why he married a noblewoman from Mercia. And maybe he had plans to raise young Athelflaed in a way that would enable her to take the mantle should Alfred die without a male heir. We don't know. Asser doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that Athelflaed was absolutely her father's daughter. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Just follow us at British Podcast. And you can find all our other communities at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.